0: If you would make your way back to the sanctuary, we'll resume our worship. Uh, 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 My name is Sean Wu. Uh, I see a lot of new faces, so I'll introduce myself. Uh, I was ordained as a pastor at King of Grace Church last summer and then sent out last fall to plant a new church in Cambridge, Massachusetts called Trinity Cambridge Church. Uh, So this is King of Grace is our mother church. Uh, and many people here have been faithful uh, supporters uh, and praying for us. And it's been uh, encouraging. Uh, it, the last uh, six months or so of being in Cambridge, uh, for God's done a lot of work. Uh, we, our first service we started, uh, we were with the Millers, which some of you know. It was four, four of us for the first service. And since then, God's added people from this church but as well as new people that we met in the city so now we have 11 people, adults, uh, members of the core team, uh, and seven kids. Uh, six kids, yeah. So 19 people or so. Uh, and we have had great opportunities to meet uh, and engage with our neighbors and share the gospel with them. Uh, and as we pray for God to send laborers into the harvest, it's one huge answered prayer recently has been the arrival of the Huckins uh, from New Jersey. Uh, they were sent by a sister church in uh, Pennsylvania. They live in New Jersey, but they went to a church in Pennsylvania, and they uh, have been a huge encouragement for us. They are a family of seven, nine if you count their two dogs. (laughs) Uh, So you can imagine, we're already starting to outgrow our house, uh, and we're looking at a public location to move into uh, next month uh, so that the people whom we have been engaging with, uh, especially unbelieving neighbors, uh, can come more easily to our service as opposed to having to go to someone's house uh, for uh, worship. So that's where we are and uh, and I want to thank you guys for being faithful uh, in your encouragement and support of us uh, it's uh, last six months uh, we didn't have until um, we didn't have an administrative assistant for a while at our church and and i didn't know whether you know financial support was still coming in uh, from people here uh, who had quite committed to give toward our mission and uh, so I was kind of in the dark uh, I was like, okay, so are we going to have <laughs> well, we need to be able to continue this. We didn't know. And then Sarah Gruens came to the rescue as an administrative assistant and got all of that in order. And we got updates, and I was blown away uh, to find that really most, if not everyone, who had been giving didn't miss a single month had been giving uh, to support us. And, and that, I assume, they've been praying for us as well. Uh, and that's an expression of God's faithfulness to us through you guys, uh, through our ascending church and mother Church. So, so I thank you guys for that. Um, and it's because of you and your support we're able to do the mission uh, that God's come called us to in Cambridge. Um, and I guess I'll connect this to uh, the this, this sermon is, is that one, one time uh, I was meeting with Stephen Miller, who's one of the members of our core team, uh, talking about spiritual matters at a local coffee shop in East Cambridge uh, where I like to go work. Um, and as we were discussing these matters, we couldn't help but overhear a woman uh, sitting next to us, about four feet away, uh, say to her boyfriend, "Hey, so do you want to believe in Jesus?" In apparent mockery of what we were saying, uh, she wasn't saying, asking that as a serious question. Uh, and, uh, and and events like that sometimes, you know, confirm our fears and suspicions. Uh, doesn't it? It's, it it makes us maybe fearful or timid of of being witnesses for Christ, right? Because we think that, at best, people are going to think that we're naive we're gullible for being Christians, and at worst, they're going to think that we're bigoted and hateful for being Christians, and that makes us uh, timid. It makes us shy away from being bold witnesses for Christ. Uh, And God, in his graciousness, through the Apostle Peter, addresses precisely this kind of situation. How do you be a Christian witness in a hostile setting? How do you suffer for Christ as witnesses? And I want to uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22. So if you turn there with me, 1 Peter chapter 3, 8 to 22. Apostle Peter is known as the apostle of hope because he talks often about the hope that we Christians have uh, especially in the midst of suffering. And in this letter, he's writing to uh, people, a group of new Gentile believers uh, who had converted to, to uh, being a Christian. And they were suffering and being persecuted uh, by people, uh, by their neighbors, by the government, uh, and, and disillusioned. We thought becoming Christian was going to come with this, this triumph, joy, and all of this. And what, what's up with all this suffering? Um, and so Peter's writing to comfort these people, uh, so let me, before I read uh, and preach from God's word, let me pray uh, for the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we come before your word uh, to hear from you, to submit to you, to learn from you, to be ministered to by you. Lord, we cannot understand and apply this word to our lives for the good of And the transformation of our lives apart from your intervention. So, won't you, as we read this word, as we hear this word read, as you speak through this message, won't you be with us? Be present. And minister powerfully, Lord, through your word. In Jesus name, we pray. Amen. So First Peter chapter 3, 8 to 22. I will read it out loud for us. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word. So this passage teaches us, it speaks to the situation that I painted earlier. of in, in, If we're in a hostile environment, how are we to be Christ's witnesses? And this passage teaches us that we are to be suffering witnesses for him. We have to be suffering witnesses for Christ because Christ is the suffering Savior for us. And being a suffering witness involves first suffering for one another, other believers in the church. So that's going to be my first point. And the second is going to involve suffering at the hands of others. It's going to involve suffering at the hands of unbelievers outside the church. And then lastly, what's going to help us and enable us to suffer for one another and at the hands of others is Christ's suffering for us at the hands of others. So those are going to be my three points as you follow along. So let's speak first about suffering for one another. This passage uh, that we just read is a concluding section of Peter's uh, household code uh, in chapter two where he talks about, he gives ethical instructions for how we ought to relate to one another. Uh, So in uh, chapter two, verses 11 to 12, he kind of gives the heading, kind of summary of what he's about to do. He says, Beloved, all of you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So that's kind of the thesis of what he's doing and this passage is kind of a concluding uh, passage of the household instructions. So he's saying this is how you ought to behave among Gentiles and unbelievers if you are to uh, honor Christ, if you are to glorify God, if you are to be a good witness, so that you put unbelievers in a place where they would honor God on the day of visitation, on the day of the return of Christ. So before that, he had addressed several things. The first was that Peter called us to submit to the authorities, the governing authorities, even to the unjust ones for the Lord's sake, he says. In 1 Peter 2. And then he talked about families, which included wives submitting to their husbands, even to unbelieving husbands out of obedience to Christ, and husbands honoring their wives and living with them in an understanding, sympathetic way. Right? So he had said all these things, and now he concludes with an exhortation in general to everyone. He says, finally, all of you, verse 8, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind this is the way christians are to live with one another because the way we live with one another is an important aspect of our witness to the watching world so modern writers uh, typically list things when they have a list in descending order right the most important thing is listed first and then you list the uh, less important things later but the biblical writers often uh, use a sandwich structure so kind of like the most important part of sandwich is the meat it's in the middle right so he just does the same thing here. He, he puts the most important thing in the middle. So in the first eight, you see, have unity of mind, first thing, and the last thing is have a humble mind, so having the same mind. Right? And then the second and the fourth item is have sympathy and then have a tender heart, is having the same feeling, right? a feeling for one another. And then in the middle of that, which sums it all up, is have brotherly love. right? That's what sums it um, all up. And this is how we ought to uh, relate to one another within the church. And recognizing this structure is helpful for understanding what these words mean exactly, because he says we ought to have unity of mind. What does that mean? To have one mind, to think alike, to be like-minded. right? So the word doesn't mean that we ought to have identical opinions. right? That's not what uh, Peter is talking about. He's saying we ought to be sensitive and agreeable toward one another's concerns. We should not uh, seek uniformity, but we should seek unity, Right, unity of mind. And we see this is true because the, the corresponding item at the, end, at the end of it is humble mind. He calls for people to have a humble mind. And, and this is a very interesting uh, word because prior to the Christians' use of the word, the humble mind, uh, people used it as a derogatory term. Right, People said it's like having a lowly mind, having a base mind having a mean-spirited mind. And the Christians transformed this and turned it into a virtue. Even though humility was considered a vice by everybody in their culture, and their society, Christians turned it into a virtue because they saw that humility was embodied in their Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's what he's calling to. So it's, it's, it's when we humble ourselves, then we seek to consider others better than ourselves, right? Think more highly of others' interests than others. And that's what uh, uh, Apostle Peter is calling us to as believers. And then the second word is sympathy. It means to feel with, right? And it involves rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. It involves suffering with one another, right? And that corresponds to the fourth word, a tender heart, having a compassionate heart toward one another. And all of this is summed up in brotherly love, which is at the center, and that's a beautiful image, as we were talking earlier about a family meeting, because we are indeed a family, right? And brotherly love, love between siblings is, is, is unique because most other loving relationships we enter into, we enter into by choice, deliberately, right? You, you choose your spouse whom you're going to marry. You, know, you choose your friends whom you're going to hang out with. But you have no choice when it comes to your siblings, because right? you're, 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 you have your brothers and sisters by virtue of having the same parents not because you have the same interests or you have the same appearance, right? And, and that's the same for us, right? So the brotherly love then it speaks to the fact that, you know what, we're not here as brothers and sisters because we have the same interests, because we dress the same way or because we talk the same way or we live in the same place. But we're here as brothers and sisters because we have the same father. That's what brings us together. And I, I've seen siblings, and you guys I'm sure have too, siblings that don't like each other. I've seen them. But they love each other, right? At least most of them do. And that's the same way for us. So all the quirky people that's our, in our midst, right? All the people with unusual habits, right? All the people that we might not necessarily have with otherwise. You know what? It doesn't matter what the people outside are saying about our brothers and sisters because they are still, regardless of what they say, our brothers, And sisters, because we have the same father. That's what it means as Christians to have brotherly love. And what a beautiful picture of a family that is for us, that that Apostle Peter is calling us to. And so we are to suffer one another. We are to suffer for one another. And that's what Jesus says in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, so this is a very important key aspect of our witness to the watching world: how we have brotherly love for one another. There is one another. There is another way to be suffering witnesses for Christ. Yes, we suffer one another, suffer for one another as witnesses, but we also suffer at the hands of others. Verse nine: It says, "Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless." For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So now Peter is turning his attention not to the church relationships, but to the relationships outside the church. And so he's saying, when people say an evil word to you, say a good word to them. Right. When people malign you, slander you, curse you, bless them. Offering God's blessing is, is a sign of offering the prospect of salvation to people. That you could be, with your blessing, an instrument of God to offer the prospect of God's saving grace to people who persecute us, malign us, slander us. And this is some simple application of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5.44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And why should we do this? Uh, Peter gives us a reason. He says in verse 9, For to this you were called. For to this you were called. That's the reason why we bless when reviled. It's because we are called. And what are we called to? And Peter spoke of this earlier in chapter 1, 14 to 19. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. It's because we have been ransomed from our futile ways. It's because we are now associated with and intimately related to a holy father. It's because we have been purchased not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's why, because we've been called to this glorious thing, glorious relationship with God. That's why we suffer. That's why we bless when we are reviled. This is a difficult thing, so Peter offers a few more encouragements and motivations. He continues in verse 9, that you may obtain a blessing. He promises that by doing this, we will obtain a blessing from God. We do it because we are called to it by God's grace. And we can expect when we obey a blessing from God. And he continues by quoting Psalm 34, 12 to 16, in verses 10 to 12. If you read with me in verses 10 to 12, it says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, this is uh, basically a word-for-word quotation of Psalm 34, 12 to 16. But it's, it's... Peter intentionally, I think, and interestingly leaves out verse, uh, part of verse 16 in Psalm 34 because it's supposed to end this way. It says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Right? Uh, but Peter leaves that out in, in this quotation. And I think he does that because he understands that now is not the time to cut off you know, the memory of them from the earth. Now is not the time of divine vengeance and vindication. But, and so he doesn't want to, to give false hope to believers to, and to say that in this time now, as you suffer, God's going to do this and wipe out your enemies and people who are hostile towards you. That's not what God's going to do. So he intentionally leaves this out. Because now is not a time of divine vengeance, but it's a time of divine patience. As Peter writes in his second letter, chapter three, verse nine, the Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right? So now is not the time of vengeance, it's a time of patience, of God's patience. That's why Peter intentionally leaves that out. So the hope that we have then is not a specific time saying that God's going to do this right now, that God's going to do this next week and wipe out evil people from the earth. That's not what the promise we have. But the promise we do have is no less sure, is that the Lord is against those who do evil and the Lord is for those who do good and that those who follow him. And no matter what your circumstances are like and what your situation is like and how much you're suffering, you can be assured that the Lord is attentive to you to your prayers and caring for you in the midst of your suffering. And this is precisely why people like Martin Luther King Jr., right, who's, who's a pastor and a civil rights activist, you know, taught a non-retaliatory ethic. So don't fight back because our hope is not here. It's in the, the age to come. It's in the Lord. And of course, uh, even though we're speaking of persecution and suffering, uh, generally speaking, when you do good deeds and you speak well of other people, uh, people are not going to be generally antagonistic towards you. They're going to like you, uh, and they're going to be good to you. Uh, but obviously, there's exceptions, which is why, uh, and, and that's why Peter says in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So, generally speaking, people are going to be favorable towards you if you are, if you follow God's commands and are obedient and do good and speak well of others. But he knows there are exceptions. In fact, the people he's writing to are exceptions to that. So he adds in verses 14 to 17, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Sometimes we will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Uh, And this is why, and this is when we are called to be suffering witnesses for him. And, we, and when we suffer at the hands of others, Paul, Peter tells us, do not fear, do not have fear in your heart, do not be troubled. But instead, what does he tell us? Have in your heart, honor Christ as holy in your heart. And those two things are directly related because what drives out the fear of man in us is the fear of God. Right? Is that when we are suffering at the hands of others, we will be filled with fear if we do not recognize that these people do not have control over us. They are not our lords and masters. Our lord and master is King Jesus Christ. And that's what gives us comfort when we suffer at the hands of others. Right? So we remember that. And, and why do we do this? It's because uh, this makes Christ look holy and glorious when we suffer for his sake. Right? It's just like a, when, when you give, when you, when you tell a child to, to obey in a certain way and and. If you do this, I will give you this, right? You might offer a reward. Maybe it's a chocolate or something. And, and, and when they obey you or do something that they otherwise wouldn't do for the sake of that reward, right, they show how precious that reward is to the child. right? And when we obey for the sake of honoring Christ, when we obey with our hope set on heaven and our hope, our hope set on eternity, it shows to the watching world how valuable, how precious, and how real those things are to us. And what's the purpose of doing that? It, it, it's to make a defense, right? He, he tells us, this, this is the opportunity for witness. When we do this, we're going to have opportunities to make a defense for the hope that we have. So Peter tells us, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Making a defense is, is, a, is a term, it's a legal term like a formal defense in, in the court of law. Right? So this is you're, he's saying, be ready to give a defense, to make a defense for the hope that you have. And so it's sometimes when we, people, we do something good, let's say at workplace, instead of being dishonest like your colleagues, you choose to, be, to work with integrity. Uh, and you are honest. And, and people ask you, so why do you, why do, you do that? Um, sometimes we're tempted to just say, well, that's just the right thing to do. But that's not what we should say. Um, because that's saying that that's just the right thing to do is, is not humbling and, and self-effacing. That's actually very prideful and self-exalting when we say that, oh, that's just the right thing to do, as if we're so good in and of ourselves that it's natural for us to do the right thing because that's the right thing to do. But as Christians, we know better than that. We're wicked people. We are sinful through and through. And it's by God's grace, even common grace, that we're able to do any good. So when people ask you, so why do you do that? Well, it's because Christ saved me. It's because my hope is not here on this earth, but in in the world to come. It's because my hope is in the glory that we will have in eternity with Christ, not the wages we earn here, not the prestige we have here. That's how you make a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. And, And Peter expects that this will be a regular occurrence. It's not just that it's a formal time when you're really on trial by the government or or prosecutors. It says, always be prepared to make a defense. And to anyone who asks you for a reason. So it's in a way, Peter tells us, as Christians who live in this world, we are daily on trial. We're on trial daily in in the eyes of the watching world. And we need to be ready always to anyone to make a defense. So when a neighbor uh, scuffs off our car and you decide, uh, and they didn't tell you about it, but you know who did it, uh, and you decide not to press it uh, or to sue them for the sake of witnessing to the hope that you have. When you have an unreasonable neighbor downstairs who... Who tells you not to vacuum at certain times? Uh, I mean, in the afternoon, or, <laughs> um, or when you have when you when you have things that you 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 suffer for the sake of the witness that we could be for Christ. And this is precisely what some campus ministries, Christian campus ministries throughout the nation, are doing. Is that they're getting kicked off campus for being Orthodox Christians, Bible-believing Christians, and you know what? They could they have a case to go to court to sue them, and they probably will win because of the First Amendment, but they choose not to do that because they say that, you know what, these are the people we're trying to save. These are the people we're trying to witness to. We'd rather lose the privilege of being on campus, using their facilities, getting college funding so that we could be witnesses of the hope that we have in Christ. But how can we do all of this it's hard enough to suffer for one another, right, within the church. How do we suffer at the hands of others? And Peter points us to the resource in verse 17 and on, 18 and on. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Um, So this passage relates in large part to to what we read earlier, but just because it probably raises a lot of questions for you, I'll just work some of those out before, uh, relating it to the larger context. Um, But uh, he's He's talking about the fact that it's Christ suffered uh, in the flesh, and as he rose in his resurrection, in the spirit he went to preach. Uh, he says he needs to, to proclaim to the spirits in prison. Uh, and because it's during the time of Noah, a lot of people think that it's, it's the spirits at the time of Noah, the angels, uh, the sons of men, sons of God, whom, as they're called, angels who came, uh, abandoned their station, God-ordained station, and had relations with uh, the woman of earth. So basically, people, humans, uh, and and that that's one way to understand that. And God and Christ went in His resurrected spirit to go uh, to risen spirit to go and proclaim His victory over them who had not obeyed previously. So that's one way to understand it. You could also understand it that Christ in the spirit went preached through Noah at the time of the flood. Through Noah, He preached to these people who are now spirits in prison. I mean, you could understand it either way, but that's not the main point. Uh, we don't have to be embroiled in this, uh, this kind of thorny issues to understand this passage because the whole point of Peter bringing this up is that when you're suffering, you can have hope because just like Noah, who suffered during his time, he was vindicated ultimately, right? He, they won out. They're the ones that passed through the judgment of the water. And that's what we now have as those who are baptized believers, right? And, and this... The, it says it's the baptism that now saves you. You don't have to be uh, troubled by that because the Bible always puts three things together about our salvation. is We repent and believe as individuals, and it is God who fills us with the Spirit. He regenerates us, and it is the church that baptizes us into, into the church. Right? So those three things happen. What we do, what the church does, what God does. So this is just an example of using a part of that to refer to the whole thing. So it's, and because just like Noah who goes through the water and, and through the judgment of water, right, and then, and then comes and prevails, us, we, through baptism, which symbolizes death and the judgment of water, we will prevail in the end. And we will be victorious with Christ in the end, is what he is saying. And how does this help us? How does this let's enable us to suffer, be suffering witnesses for Christ? The fact that Christ is our suffering Savior helps us for these reasons. Because Christ suffered in the flesh. He is the Holy One. He is the Son of God. Yet he humbled himself, as he teaches us in Philippians 2, by taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Even though he was in the very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So in the same way for us, because Christ suffered for us, because Christ abandoned his station for us, we can suffer for one another, right? It's, it's very, um, in, in, in our society, it's, it's very democratic and egalitarian. It is uh, very char- characteristic of our culture to seek and demand our rights, right? So this is my right, and I will seek it, and I will get it, right? And that's, that's the thing you can do. And it is very American to demand our rights, to pursue our rights, but it is very Christian to forfeit our rights for the sake of others. Because that's what Christ did for us. Even though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And this reveals a remarkable truth because when we, if we're honest with ourselves, seek to be treated equally and fairly, because of our sinful nature, we tend to treat ourselves better than other people. We tend to get the better end of the stick. It's only when we seek to lower ourselves, consider others better than ourselves, to keep put, other, put others' interests before our interests, that's when true justice can characterize our lives and our society. So Christ did this for us. He humbled himself for it, and that's what enables us to suffer for one another. In the same way, when we are suffering at the hands of others, it is Christ who enables us to suffer, because he suffered, the righteous one, the holy one, at the hands of evil people, of the wicked, the unrighteous. He suffered at their hands for our sake. He is the king, the glorious one, that does not, should never bow to anyone, that should never suffer at the hands of anyone. But he suffered for us at the hands of the unrighteous. If our king can suffer at the hands of others. Can we, his lowly servants, suffer at the hands of others for the sake of his glory, for the sake of bringing those people to Christ? The victory promised to us is sure, but it is not yet. It's in the age to come. And I want to exhort Those of you who may not have put your faith in Christ yet, you might be wondering, well, that sounds fun. (laughs) Why would I want to become a Christian and live life of such suffering? But we can assure you, as we have been singing about, as we have been praying about, as we have been reading about, no Christian suffers alone. When we suffer, we have one another, the family of God. And when we suffer, we suffer with Christ, our Savior. And there is joy in that. And he has never left us. He's always faithful to us. Never once were we left to our own in our suffering. And this suffering is going to lead to eternal, imperishable glory. Oh, this is just the light and momentary suffering compared to that great reality that awaits us. So let me ask you, if you have not put your place in Christ, why would you tarry to come to this gracious and loving King? Why would you delay committing your allegiance to this wonderful Savior? He beckons you to come. We can be Christ's suffering witnesses because Christ is our suffering Savior. Let's pray together.